I enjoy being pessimistic. That's really what it comes down to on these podcasts. It's not even like who knows most. It's like who's who's an optimist and then who's like a dead pessimist and then who's the one person in the middle of all of that just trying to go like, we don't really know yet, guys. Like, (laughs) That'll be me then. By the process of elimination. Hello and welcome to another episode of The World in Perspective. My name is Cameron Vasquez. I'm in Cincinnati, Ohio, and I'll be your host today, just like normal. Joining us, carrying the staff of doom, <laughs> once again on this podcast, we have Saman Kidwai uh, in Uttar Pradesh, right? Back in Delhi. Oh, back in Delhi. And in Chicago, United States, Illinois. Not in that order. We have Meira Brody, a staff writer with ITS who focuses on Israel, and then joining us once again from his humble abode in the mountains of Scotland, or at least that's how I imagine it. We have Daniel <laughs> Odin Shaw. And yeah, and I'm the biggest <laughs> in Scotland. No, yeah, that, that's totally fine. That makes it sound much more romantic. So yeah, I enjoy that. Yeah, it's like on this gorgeous bluff overlooking a lake. And there's just always a little bit of snow on the ground, right? That would be great. As someone who's trying to buy a house right now, <laughs> that would be great. <laughs> but no. This week on the podcast, we're going to be discussing the Palestinian Authority's recent decision to hold elections. That is to say, Abbas's decision to hold elections in the Palestinian territory and what that means for the future of relations between Israel and Palestine, between Palestine and the United States, and a whole bunch of other regional actors. Just to get us started on this issue, Saman, why don't you tell us a little bit about when this decision was made and, and sort of what led up to this and, and what's going on, what's happened since then? What is this, what is this all about? Why now? So uh, the decision to hold elections was announced last year. Uh, Mahmoud Abbas essentially took that decision because he's the only person with enough authority within the Palestinian Authority to do so. And I think the major reason uh, why they decided to hold elections now was because under President Trump, their relationship took a complete nosedive. And they thought with a change in administration with Joe Biden coming into the picture, and he's someone who seems more agreeable to implementing a two-state solution. He wants to find a way to you know, resolve the conflict. So this would be the perfect time to sort of you know, reset the ties, come out with Hamas and present us a united front, that they're willing to work together, that they're willing to move forward, that they're willing to work with the Israelis, and they're willing to work with the incoming administration. But honestly, it's been over a decade since the last elections were uh, held, and Fatah never accepted Hamas's victory in the Gaza Strip, and that re- re- resulted in bloody clashes, and things took a turn for the worse. So I'm just going to be the pessimistic person I am and say nothing good's going to come out of it. And either way, either, the yes, either way, they're <laughs> fucked because Hamas is not going to accept Fatah's victory. Fatah is not going to accept Hamas's victory. And frankly, an American administration will not negotiate with Hamas, a group it considers to be a terrorist outfit, um, as most of the uh, West sort of concurs with that. Meira, would you say you agree with all of that? I mean, there's definitely some room for, for movement, right? I mean, the United States, well, I mean, I have to, I have to pivot to someone, right? Because that, that's the end of the podcast, if, if that's the, the final word, right? <laughs> um, but, you know, uh, there, there is some room for movement, right? The United States has been looking for a very long time for a way to kind of wrap this up. And, you know, there's always some, you know, sort of diplomatic ball game to be played somewhere. 
uh, to try to, you know, gain concessions from one side or the other. Um, I think most of the West might just to be able to kind of wrap up this issue to, if, if nothing else, be willing to, you know, recognize Hamas if it were to drop things that it's probably not willing to drop, right? Like the continuation of its military um, mm -hmm. operations, right? The military wing of the political party um, and to recognize the peace accord between uh, the PLO and Israel. Those are huge ticket items, which has previously made it impossible for Fatah and the uh, and Hamas to actually form a unity government. Mm -hmm. But do you think there's a sort of an inflection point here? Is there why why is this happening now? If Abbas has been in power for sixteen years over the the stature of his uh, his election. Yeah. Well, how I kind of see it is the fact that. The fact that the United States has um, sort of changed the direction as far as, as who they have in power, which, as we know, is definitely um, there's a great difference between the two, uh, between Biden and Trump in the way that they approach foreign policy. And so there is this hope there that the Biden administration will be more likely to um, reinstate relations with um, the Palestinian Authority. And I think that by holding an election, it kind of legitimizes their status as a state of their own and as like an independent government because it it isn't something that a, a that a, a a territory under the complete control of another country would have. So I think it's a bit of a play on the fact that the United States values democracy and to sort of demonstrate that the Palestinian Authority views their government as a democracy, I think that it's a kind of play to, to um, win the favor of the United States in that way. But I don't necessarily think that it makes that much of a difference, as someone said, because, you know, no one's, they're not going to accept the results. It's kind of, a, it's kind of a, an election held with the expectation that the results will be the same regardless. And if they aren't the same, then they're going to be delegitimized and nothing's going to change regardless. So I think it's a little bit more of a show rather than an actual pivot point for um, what has happened in the past. So I, I, I definitely think that it's not, not something that we should be anticipating as a a great chance for change here and also beyond that the Palestinian um there actually I read something pretty recently that said that there was a poll that um that 53 percent or so of um Palestinians who participated in the poll believed that the elections would not be free they would not be they would not be equal and that it wouldn't be representative of what the Palestinian people actually think and so that's a a pretty important point because if the Palestinian people do not view the elections as something that is representative of them, then I don't know why the United States would either. And beyond that, again, um, the same poll said something like 75% or close to 80% of, of people in the polls said that if one side won, the other wouldn't, wouldn't recognize it anyway. So yeah, <laughs> I'm honestly just echoing what someone had said, so. Thank you. Finally. <laughs> Show of support. <laughs> this is what I like. Good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a number of things going on here, which, looking at it as someone who's maybe a non-expert, it just kind of strikes me that there's a few ways this could potentially move the peace process forward, but 
from what it sounds like, that, that probably isn't the likely outcome. I mean, first of all, I mean, there's this point that you made really well, Mira, that outside legitimacy is so important and democracy is a way to gain that. And that's why I think that, you know, the US might not mind if it's not the best run election of all time, if it gives a result that everyone can live with, you know, maybe it's, mm-hmm. it's not about the process in this case so much as it is about the outcome. Whether or not we get that outcome is another question. Mm-hmm. The, other, the other thing I wonder is this idea of having a mandate internally. I mean, why doing it now? I mean, is it because if Abbas manages to win big in some way, will that provide a mandate for his plan moving forward? That calls into question in what plan is the plan moving forward because we know that sort of Trump-Kushner peace plan is absolutely dead in the water. I mean, it was terrible from its inception and it was never going to fly. So what's the alternative here? Are we going back to mm-hmm. one of the previous sets of principles or is there going to be a push for something new or a new change of strategy we'll come to this in a minute i imagine but the global context regional context has changed so much with all of these arab states normalizing relations and then finally Mm -hmm. there's this idea of unity i mean if you want to negotiate something so difficult you need to have i think unity on both sides now there's not unity on the israeli side and historically there hasn't been right i mean this has been derailed by extremists on the israeli side and extremists on the palestinian side at different points so, um, and I guess we'll come to that also, there's going to be Israeli elections uh, not too far off also. But, I mean, if it could deliver unity on the Palestinian side, it would provide that mandate that is needed to actually kind of reset negotiations. Mm-hmm. But from what you've both said, it doesn't really look like that. I mean, polling seems to show there's going to be roughly um, a very, very close election between Fatah and Hamas. The, the only thing that seems like it might change that is actually the fact that Fatah might be having an internal party split. That's mm-hmm. going to go to the courts, so that might actually fragment it um, in a way that may allow Hamas to win, which which causes problems of its own. And, and frankly, I don't think that further fragmentation in the Palestinian system sure. is, is going to lead to anything good, no matter who wins. Um, so yeah, I mean, uh, I think that from a sort of the logic of negotiation, there's, there's a lot to look at here, but, but then in terms of how it's likely to shake out, I just can't see any of it. Sticking. Sure. And, and beyond that, like, I mean, looking at the the logistics of creating or uh, having an election, it's that, you know, when when an election happens in any government, there's a lot of change, there's a lot of uncertainty, there's a lot of shifting going on. And I don't know that necessarily the Palestinian Authority is in a place where um, having regular elections and having um, regular changes in administration would would do much positively for their stability because you know they're in a vulnerable position with um israel and shaking things up with and bringing in a new administration with regularity would be risky risky for them um i mean it's terribly unfair to the citizens but as hard as the situation is you know it wouldn't make sense for um abbas to kind of like voluntarily remove himself from power or or put power his power in jeopardy or you know i think it's a little bit more beneficial for the Palestinian Authority to make any changes that they uh, decide to go forward with minor and um, keeping in mind with stability and legitimacy in regards to the Israeli government and to not under- undermine their own ability to take care of themselves and their citizens. I want to fixate on this idea of unity. I mean, Saman, I'm posed this to you, but uh, you know what I'm posing these sort of rosier, hey, what, you know, what might this mean in the positive sense? I'm setting you up to smash your staff of doom down on the idea, right? It's not, there's no way that this is actually going to go wonderfully, given the way that it's been set up. And Mayra, you, you, you set the, the stage very well for that, right? I mean, there's no apparent unity before the fact. And so a lot of the, the critics of, of the plan as it stands right now is it's you're putting the horse before the cart, right? You need mm-hmm. a plan for a government of unity 
no matter the outcome, and mm-hmm. then you hold the election so that there's there's reason for both sides to actually certify the results, whatever they may be. So if this is really just about a, about a show, as opposed to you know something further, and given the fact that the Palestinian Authority, you know Abbas has uh, resumed its uh, civil and security cooperation with Israel. Um, mm-hmm. And it's considering changes to the controversial sort of, excuse me, <laughs> to the sort of controversial welfare program uh, called, you know, pay to slay. So in, in vernacular, basically where the Palestinian state uh, sends uh, sort of remissions to prisoners of, you know, Palestinian prisoners held captive in Israel. Um, given that there's actual other policy movement elsewhere and what you just said, Mayra, about Abbas not seemingly, you know, why would he voluntarily sort of remove himself from power? And there's very clear polling that most of Palestine doesn't really want him to remain um, in charge. Mm-hmm. What is this all then about? There's, I mean, there's, there's a very clear non sequitur for me. So I'd take us through, if, put just like, take us through the mind of Abbas. What is the play here and what's, what's being done and why? And what is this really for? And what, what is it, its intent? I think this is his last ditch attempt at somehow normalizing uh, relations with Israel and you know trying to have the American administration sort of come in and mediate between the warring factions because if he doesn't do it now he probably never will the man's 85 years old and in poor health a he's gonna die or he'll have to step down because of his diminishing popularity and so if he feels that there's no other way out and he's got nothing else to lose they've done everything they've tried everything it's not worked in the past and he needs to get the mess sorted now more so because of the threat now that Mohammed Dahlan poses and his democratic reformist current because he he and uh, his fellow lawmakers were earlier part of the Fatah coalition before they were dismissed I mean he was dismissed because of he was investigated for corruption and then he was uh, accused of embezzling millions of dollars. He had a previously had a falling out with Abbas because he was somehow responsible for everything that went down in the Gaza Strip. So he wants to keep him at bay. He doesn't want him undermining his popularity any more than it already has because, I mean, nobody wants the Fatah or the Hamas. The Palestinians are sick and tired of both the factions, right? They've done nothing for them. They've only worsened the situation. So I feel this is nothing more than a, just a desperate attempt to sort of get things back on track and at least move things forward, if not achieve a substantive resolution, because that, can't, that cannot be achieved in the next four years. It's impossible. Even the Biden administration is not going to dedicate its first year to those situations. I mean, for President Biden, he has to deal with the fallout of COVID-19 on American lives. He has to repair the damage uh, that was caused to the partnerships with the European allies. Then the Russia and China factor come, comes into play. So. I think this is the only way. Not to mention climate change and a host of other <laughs> issues that are way further up yeah. his docket than right. you know solving peace in the Middle yeah. East again. Again, so right? I, his Secretary of State has made it clear that that's not going to be a priority for the Biden administration. So I feel like this is the only way that he has to sort of get the Biden administration to come on board right now, before the situation worsens. And we know, especially in the context of the Israel-Palestine conflict, that situation can get worse very quickly. It doesn't take a lot. It just needs to be a trigger factor and it can all go to hell. So this, I feel he, he feels that if he can do it now, he might have some chance of his political survival depends on it because the way that he sort of betrayed the Palestinians by retracting on his uh, statement of how he will cut ties with Israel, especially after the signing of the Abraham Accords, 
and Hamas and then as I, as I mentioned Mohammed Dehlan sort of all undermining his uh, status so he, he has no other choice yeah I mean I'm, I'm interested in this idea of, of the role of Mohammed Dehlan here before getting too much in the weeds I mean it strikes me that this is one of several big unknowns that, that make it quite difficult to predict what's going to happen here I mean he's banned from running for president because of these legal problems you mentioned and those legal mm -hmm. problems also potentially affect the entire list system of the democratic reform current so they might run as part of the fact list they might not but if they run outside of that there will be a bit of legal drama which I think I mean maybe that's predictable I don't know enough to predict how that's going to work but I mean that that comes with two other I think unknowns that could affect this and one of them is the effect of the change in the electoral system from mixed member to fully proportional so there's not a lot of polling that gets done in Palestine what we have suggests a close race but I mean that that changes the calculations a little bit so there might be an unexpected result and then finally there's the issue of East Jerusalem and whether people there will be able to vote which is politically sensitive also I suppose could could affect a close race so um, I think there's a few things there that, that make this a little bit less predictable. Right and we don't even know if this is going to happen we have no idea if this is going to be called off between now and May we've got about five months four or five months for this to fall apart even as it has in the past so I'm not even sure that we can expect that this will take place. And is there a COVID factor in that, I wonder? Because, I mean, the um, the, the elections that are going to be in May in the UK here, the local government and, and Scottish elections, and, I mean, there's talk of them being cancelled or something like that. So I wonder how that works in Palestine. Um, we know what the, what the processes are like for things like postal voting and, and how they'll mm -hmm. actually manage to ensure people can be enfranchised given the current sort of crisis. Yeah, it could be. It could very well be. And um, that might come into play later on where you know they're saying oh well we intended to have an election but you know given the situation with coronavirus not improving uh, we've we've been forced to cancel so i don't know i more and more of this is kind of indicating that this isn't necessarily a sincere um look for change so it's not just COVID-19, but I feel that any number of factors can come into play, right? Both Fatah and Hamas can blame each other for using uh, any kind of dirty tactics to undermine their position. They can blame it on Israel. They can blame, on, blame it on the lack of compromise to come to some sort of power sharing arrangement. So any one of those things can happen. And COVID has always aggravated the crisis. And I don't see why uh, the Palestinian situation should be any different. I want to kind of shift now to what this would mean for Israeli politics. I mean, we kind of mentioned this in briefly earlier, but, um, you know, Israel is going to be holding its elections in a short time after this. There's two likely, there's two main likely scenarios, right? Like one is clearly likely that this is just going to end in further disunion and, and division within Palestine. But assuming that by some miracle or, you know, assuming that there is a, a coordinated external effort from, you know, European stakeholders and the United States to actually support the process and make sure that it's carried out effectively. And maybe there's, you know, um, election monitors on the ground from external sources that are trusted, right? Assuming all of that actually happens and the election process goes well, there's a unity government and some perhaps shaky but, but functional unity government forms what does this mean for, for Israel, right? If, if by some miracle this all works out, what is this going to mean for Israeli politics? Because one of the, the, the easy 
you know, sort of slapbacks from Israel mm-hmm. has been, well, there's no credible partner in Palestine to negotiate with in the first place. So why bother? Right. So that yeah. taking that away, what is that going to mean for, for Israel's actions with regards to settlement activity and, and how it um, engages with the rest of the world on the question? Yeah, you know, I'm not really sure what it would mean, speaking frankly, for settlement activity. Um, honestly, I think that any type of unity government between Hamas and Fatah would create a lot of um, a lot of fear and a lot of uh, concern among the Israeli government. I mean, look at Gaza. Like, there's absolutely no relations with Gaza. There's no, there's no. I dare to say right now, hope for relations with Gaza at all. And um, with Gaza or with with Hamas gaining more power in um, the Palestinian Authority and in the West Bank, I just don't think that it would be, I, I don't think that anything good could come from that um, as far as relations with um relations with the Israeli government, I mean, they'd be even less likely to consider any concerns or um, any requests of the um, Palestinian Authority if Hamas were more involved. I wonder how this affects those now shelved plans for annexation. Um, The Biden administration obviously is going to take a different tap on that from Trump, but at the same time, Israel will be feeling less isolated than it previously would have under... Um, with you know the situation with the normalization in the region Mm -hmm. yeah I don't know I mean I think that right now um, the uh, the Arab-Israeli agreements and um, and peace efforts um, coming from other countries right now is could definitely give um, other Arab countries a little bit of leverage and saying hey like why don't you back off of that a little bit and I think I I don't see um, much movement in the future as far as that especially right now with sort of the honeymoon period of um of this new found relation i mean look at how friendly uh the uae and israel seem to be right now like anything to jeopardize that i think would be really devastating to um to normalization and peace efforts within the rest of the arab world I don't see how that's going to change much on uh, Israel's part because even if, say, Benjamin Netanyahu is convicted and he goes out of the picture, the other candidates, whether it's Benny Gantz, it's Gideon Saar, things are not going to change. They have very little differences in their ideological perspectives. Gideon Saar, for example, is very much pro- a pro-settler leader. He is against the idea of forming a sovereign Palestinian state. I think he said something on the lines of how if a sovereign Palestinian state would be formed, it would pose a security and a demographic uh, threat to Israel. So that's not going to change. And frankly, Israelis are not interested in peace. None of the major right-wing parties are there who are interested in peace. And the Arab countries, because they've so normalized their uh, relations with Israel, I mean, to be fair, they already had informal relations. They sort of just made it official now. Mm-hmm. And right. yeah, even they have really abandoned the Palestinian cause. I mean, they can't come out and say that very clearly because that would cause chaos within their own borders. But they are not going to go out of their way to exert any kind of influence with Israel. The Biden administration, yes, it's going to try and manage the conflict. But again, going out of their way to resolve this issue, I don't see how it's going to play out in the next four years at least. Yeah, I would have to agree with that. 
Thank you. I love I love this podcast. Before this call, Daniel, I mean <laughs> I love it. Before the call, Daniel, you mentioned um, you know, that this is probably just the, the something to the effect of the final nail in the coffin of the the, the idea of a two state solution, right? I mean if this isn't even possible to be held in the first place, you know, what does this mean for the future of this two-state solution? And should the international community be even backing that anymore? Yeah, I mean, it's a difficult question. It's an old question. Uh, I mean, the, the, the... 70 years old. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, the, the, Trump, the, the Trump plan, such as it was, was, was very, very poor, and they refused to use the phrase two-state. But I mean, I, I think that it, it's interesting to look at because it basically, it created a sort of de facto Palestinian state that was so non-viable as to be basically unacceptable to any reasonable observer economically and and politically non-viable and with no real sovereignty as to its own borders or security but i think that is essentially a sign of the times a a, a two-state solution on the basis of like the 67 borders on the basis of a genuinely sovereign palestinian state is such a hard sell within israel as for the reasons the man mentioned there's not really a big push for that within israel now, without Israel as a willing partner on that, it doesn't really matter whether it's Hamas or Fatah there, and there's not going to be an acceptable two-state solution there. At the same time, what you have are these institutions within the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. I mean, how are they going to be integrated? And in, if, you, if you're assuming that leaves a one-state solution, how do you integrate these institutions? And how do you integrate that population? A difficult enough task five or ten years ago even more mm-hmm. difficult now that there has been these clear moves from Israeli politicians to start defining Israel as more of a kind of ethno state or this idea that it's a Jewish state fundamentally. Of course, that was always a sort of unsaid there, but you're, you're getting to a stage now where it's even less convincing, this idea that you could have a really sort of like secular state with, with kind of Palestinians and, and Israeli Jews. Kind of living side by side, I mean, that really seems like it would be the most viable given the sort of the, the structures and the borders involved, but, but politically it's, it's still totally unviable. So yeah. that, does, that leaves us with that kind of depressing conclusion. More so because, uh, I don't know if you know, but uh, President Biden actually gave an interview through the New York Times last year, sometime in Feb, and he was asked about the two-state solution and how things would play out in the future regarding the conflict between Israel and Palestine. And he spoke about how he supported the two-state solution and uh, you know the formation of the Palestinian state as per the pre-1967 boundaries. But he also recognized the Israeli right to retain control over the settlements. I don't know how he plans to reconcile both these, uh, both the opposing uh, pers- uh, perspectives. And frankly, two-state solution, a just two-state solution had long been dead. It's just about ma- a matter of implementing a solution now to end this conflict once and for all. And it's never going to be fair. Frankly, the Arab countries are no longer interested in, uh, in, the, in supporting the Palestinians. European countries, while they might condemn the Israeli actions, they're not going to go out of the way to convince Israel to change its plans. And the US, the American leaders, I completely understand they, that they can't go against the Israeli interest. That'd be political suicide in the United States. Less so nowadays. I will. I will. I will say there's 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 been definitely a, a, a bit of movement in the last four years in particular, especially as the Trump administration made some of the more brazen moves politically. Um, you know, blatantly moving the embassy to Jerusalem and things like that. Um, where you know it's there's not a, a pretense anymore, right? That that it's become a, a little bit more politically feasible, especially within the the left, um, politically in the United States to discuss. 
um, you know, supporting, you know, the the idea of having an Israel, but but not supporting the the state of Israel's actions all the time is is not as politically suicidal as it once was. You're definitely going to be in very murky waters, but I think that's something else that's that's worth mentioning here. There's 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 clearly a number of factors that are, you know, if this isn't if this is Abbas's sort of last ditch effort, he's clearly doing it because there's a reason to do it at all right otherwise you would just live out your days till the end of you know when you could politically manage and then pass it on right like why introduce the uncertainty now if there wasn't going to be any potential movement for it right so i think that in terms of just u.s action there's (laughs) ironically at this point in time there's more political space to talk about it um and less political you know, will to do it, to do so, right? Like there's more, there's more room to talk about it in a more frank way, especially, you know, 70, 75, however many years we're in now, um, later, but you know, there's just, just not the bandwidth for it at this time. Right. Well, one thing that I would say, um, like sort of echoing the other, the statements of other people, um, is that, it's really not going like it's really not going to be fair. Like there's no way to make it fair. There's no way to make it um, a two state solution uh, satisfy both parties. We're still going to have um, disagreement over the status of Jerusalem and who's allowed to live there and whose capital it is and who um, who controls the territory. And um, beyond that, like it's going to require both sides to settle in one way or another, which neither of them seem to want to. So I think that really the only true solution is going to be a binational state, a one state solution. I mean, however far off that is and unrealistic that seems right now, I mean, that's the only way to truly end this. Um, But I mean, also, it's not going to be up to the American um, diplomacy to solve this in the end. It's going to be definitely up to the Israelis and Palestinians. Um, So, I mean, as much as there's, there's room in um, U.S. politics to have a uh, dialogue about this and, and negotiate about this. It's, it's at the end, it's just going to be up to them, not up to the U.S. Um, so that's kind of <laughs> where I'm leaving this, that, um, that it's just going to be a movement towards working together instead of, it's going to be movement towards working together instead of um, finding some sort of compromise that yeah i mean that seems to be the only way forward i guess my question is is netanyahu the sort of person who can engage in that kind of work is he the sort of person who's likely to work with whatever administration comes out of these elections it strikes me that he probably isn't but no. as is already mentioned it's not clear what sort of major figure in israeli politics right now would be that person but, I mean, I think that is really the, the thing, whether it's a one-state solution or a two-state solution, that, that lack of a partnership kind of works both ways. And right now I see that very, very strongly with Netanyahu, especially because his domestic legitimacy is so precarious, given the legal troubles. I mean, the party are still riding pretty high, but um, his, um, he's personally a polarising figure. And I think that probably doesn't incentivize making those kind of big choices and big concessions that would be necessary to kind of forge that like new working relationship. I want to kind of pivot um, as we move on here. Just we, someone, you're going to like this one. I'm pitching this one again to you. Let's consider the worst case scenario. (laughs) That I like. Right. So channeling, channeling your staff of doom, 
what's the worst case scenario that comes out of the the Palestinian elections should they happen at all right and then what does that mean for Israeli politics like what is Israel likely to do in a worst case scenario uh, outcome from the Palestinian elections where there's maybe a contested result and you know neither party accepts the result and both claim they won uh, the Israelis will, uh, e let's say, even if the elections are contested or if they are somehow able to come together, what either way, uh, Israeli governments are not going to negotiate with Hamas. There's no way, and I don't see that changing anytime soon. They'd be more willing to negotiate with Abbas. They'd be even more willing to negotiate with Mohammed Dahlan or one of his uh, fellow uh, party members because he's someone who's cultivated lifelong relationships with important uh, Israeli politicians, including Avigdor Lieberman, who previously served as the Israeli Minister of Defense. And if, let's say, if you take Dahlan out of the picture, Israelis really have they can reject it if it doesn't suit their interests if it doesn't work for them they're going to straight out reject it and unless biden really uh, exerts an overwhelming amount of pressure on on uh, whoever is in charge in israel to sort of come on board and sort of mediate and arrive at some sort of a negotiated settlement at least for a short term period nothing's going to change and not netanyahu is never going to do that he he is so radical in his approach kirian sar even more so than him Benny Gantz, for he's all the lot more moderate than Netanyahu is. He's not going to give up on what he feels is beneficial for Israeli security, and Hamas directly threatens that. So, what I really mean is, worst case scenario, there's actual conflict. That's a great. That's a great analysis. If there's sort of the the worst best, the best of the worst case scenarios happens, right? But if the worst case scenario comes to pass and there is actual sort of renewed conflict, as there was. What was it in 2007 Seven, or so? Um, yeah. Um, between, you know, say in the Gaza Strip again, what is Israel likely to do? Mayra, you want to take that? Um, I really think that if it were to go the worst possible way it could and um, Hamas were to gain authority in, in um, Palestinian authority, it would definitely cause a major concern over national security for Israel. And I mean, seeing another version of what is happening in Gaza would not be out of the question. And I think that's something that would be scary for both Palestinians and Israelis, because it's the most unfriendly type of border that they have and the most unfriendly type of relation that they have. And, and there wouldn't be room for negotiation in the, as far as Israeli, uh, diplomacy goes. They wouldn't negotiate with um, Hamas. They would not, because they, they see them as terrorists and they they see what's happening in, um, in Gaza. So if we were to look at it from the perspective of like what would happen if, if Hamas were to gain power, I mean, look at Gaza and that is kind of where you would get more or less of an answer. <laughs> so... Unfortunate as that is, I, I don't think that it would make any positive change. Yeah, I mean, the, the worry here, I think, is that it, it would put, in some ways, Hamas in, in quite a difficult position. Clearly, they're not strong enough to really contest anything with Israel. Haven't been for a long time, but even less so with the post-normalisation situation in the Middle East and 
uh, if what we think is true, then probably the, incre- the decreasing funding that's going to them from any potential backers. So they're not in a position to really contest Israel. At the same time, if Israel refuses to negotiate with them as things stand on the basis that they are terrorists, or as Israel would define it, and that leaves them with really the only option left is to return to that kind of violence. Because if they're left off the negotiating table as things stand, that would probably be the only way of them getting back on. So, I mean, that that could potentially make it inevitable. Unless, you know, the only alternative being a sort of blockade of the West Bank in the same way as there has been of Gaza, which would create just a humanitarian disaster. So, um, yeah, I mean, Israel might come under international pressure to negotiate at that stage if Hamas were to make some concessions, purely because the, the consequences of neither side negotiating would be so massive and, and close to inevitable. Well, um, this has definitely been one of our more um, sort of depressing uh, episodes <laughs> where there's there's no clear uh, path forward whatsoever, really. There's nothing um, that appears likely to sort of come out in terms of positive reaction um, from the news. But um, we'll be closely monitoring this uh, at ITS and you can read our articles on our website at theintlscholar.com. For those of you who'd like to support our work at ITS, you can uh, become a patron of ours on patreon.com. There will be a link to that in the description. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with your friends and colleagues. Uh, subscribe, leave us a rating. It really helps to get the word out for the podcast. And you can follow us on social media and Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and LinkedIn at the handle the INTL Scholar. So for now, for myself in Cincinnati, uh, someone in Delhi. People, we just went uh, over there right at the start of the podcast. <laughs> back in someone, Delhi. I said someone. You're back in Delhi. That's right. So okay, but for now. <laughs> From myself in Cincinnati, from Saman in New Delhi, uh, from Meira in Chicago, and from Daniel in Edinburgh, it's goodbye.